Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church. My name is Josh DeLaRosa, and today we're going to launch a new series of messages for three weeks. We're going to be wrestling through this question right here. Is the God that I read about in the Word really the God of this world? And and I mean, like, really, is he the God of this world? And, I mean, this God that we read about, this God that we sing about at church or even during the week, this God that we worship on Sundays, really, is this the same God that that can guide our whole life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, like all through the week, not just on Sunday, but all through the week? Is this the God that can guide my life while I'm on the job, or when I'm in the classroom, or when I'm at home, or when I'm struggling in my family life, or, or with my friendships? What about when I find myself sick? Or I'm really troubled. Is this really the God that can that can help me? That's what I want to look at. Is the God of the Word really the God of this world? What about when I'm worried or when I'm fearful? Is this God in the in the Word really the one who who can help me uh, with my emotions? And what about when I really look out at the night sky or when I read the news about scientific discoveries? Is this God that I read about in the early part of, of the Bible, in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is this the one, you know, the one who really did speak the universe into existence like Genesis reveals? Is this really the one who created all that we see and, and know? Or is this more of just an antiquated story? Is this just here to help us sort of feel better and feel more valuable. But then there's this other reality of how the origins occurred. Are, are we really to believe that, that God was the intelligent being, the designer behind the vast wonders of, of this universe? Or have we sort of hit a point in our modern era where we have progressed and discovered so much that we just now, we just can't accept this version of our origins, origins anymore? So these are just some of the questions that we're going to be looking at in this series. And here's, here's where we're going specifically. So uh, this message, we're going to look at the universe and ask, is the God of the Word really the God of, of the universe? Uh, next message, next week, we're going to look at the human body. And, and we're going to ask, is the God of the Word really the, the creator of life and the, and the human body? Or are we just an evolved species from, from apes who emerged at some point from the primordial soup and did we just sort of evolve over time and eventually develop language and the ability to communicate? And will we eventually just become something else over a long period of time? And if so, then what are we supposed to do with the story we read about in here? And then the following week, week three of the series, we're going to look at the mind. And we're going to ask some questions about, is the God of the Word really the God who relates to us and has given us the capacity to relate back to Him and to think and to relate to each other and to process uh, not only this world, but to even learn about God, learn about his ways, to learn his wisdom, to process and, and understand truth. Or are we to believe that there really are no standards? There's really no truth. And ultimately, there's really no point. And so these are some of the questions. These are all weighty questions that we're going to be wrestling through in this series. 
Let's just uh, start with this. It's going to be very cerebral, more more cerebral than normal. What I mean is more intellectual. Uh, and we're, we're only going to be able to, in three weeks, just sort of brush over the surface of these questions and these issues. But I hope that this series will, will pique your interest. And I hope it will help you begin an investigation or maybe refresh your understanding of some of these issues. And so just you probably know this, but as a pastor, uh, I, I have a bias to begin with. I believe that the God of the Word is actually the God of this world. Uh, I, I believe in Him. I accept that this is His truth, and I accept some things that, and I'll just start with these. I, I accept that God is, is transcendent, I, I, which means He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He's not bound like you and me to this realm He's transcendent, but he's also personal. He interacts with us. He, he can be known by us in a very personal way. And also, I believe that God is, he is sovereign. He is in complete control of all things. And so, just to be up front, those, those are my biases, and, and you're probably not surprised. I was thinking about this, and, and I realized I've been uh, in ministry now. I was licensed in ministry in 1995, nearly 27 years ago. And so the focus of, of my life has been to aim to really understand what God says in, in the Bible, to really try to live out uh, the Christian faith, to to share, to preach, to teach the Bible, uh, and to really to come alongside and help explain this to people and to help uh, the churches that I've been a part of move forward the mission that Jesus has given us. And so even when we started the church here in Riverside in 2007, this was really the focus of our life to help people understand what God has to say to us in the Bible so that we could live it out in real life. Now, you probably have some biases as well, and, and I don't want to assume that, that we're completely on the same page, and so you might be investigating. Also, another thing, just to be upfront and clear, I'm not a scientist, and so that's no surprise probably there if you're part of our church or maybe you've explored our website before and watched some videos before of our messages. I'm also not an expert on these topics, but as I've been digging into both the Bible and reading and, and preparing for this series, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've been really strengthened in my faith. Uh, I, I truly believe that we have a reasonable faith in the Christian faith. And so I, I want to lay out some evidence over these three weeks that really point uh, to the support and the existence of a creator, an intelligent designer. And so my goal for this series is to, is to look at the Bible's description of the universe's origins and then compare that with, with modern science and, and discovery. And so uh, let's, let's begin with just a, a brief word of prayer. Father, we ask you to speak to us. I pray for open hearts and minds, Lord, that we would uh, seek to know you, uh, seek to uh, grow our understanding of what you have made and what your word, the Bible, teaches about that. And I pray for an openness, Lord, for those that are exploring and maybe listening and not yet convinced about you. Lord, I pray that you would stir a growing curiosity, Lord, that more people would be drawn to know you in a real way, in a personal way, through your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask you to guide this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in life, I want to start with this. We use uh, three channels to evaluate what's real in life. And we use these different channels when we decide about anything. Like, for example, if you're 
trying to figure out what you should purchase or uh, even like if you're trying to go on a diet and you're exploring diets, uh, certainly for issues like faith matters. Whenever you're trying to make a decision on what's the best course or what is real, you, you run decisions through three channels. And so the first channel is this. It's the intellectual channel. And the question here is, does it match with reality? And so this series will primarily focus on this issue of the intellectual channel. Uh, although you can't put God in a test tube and, and or just simply use the scientific method to prove the existence of God. But what we want to do is this series will, will hopefully for you lay out some of the core reasoning issues. The next channel is this. It's the pragmatic channel. Whenever you're making big decisions, trying to uh, figure out if this if this is real and if you should do this uh, this thing or explore this area, there's this channel called the pragmatic channel. And it's really the question of does it work? Like in real life, does it work? Like what a trustworthy friend say about this area. Sometimes, like a diet, for example, uh, you, you just sort of, you hear the plan and then it seems like it's a little too good to be true. And so maybe you hear about a diet and you question whether or not it works. For example, the diets that I hear about these days, they say, you know, you can eat anything. Uh, as long as you do this other thing, you can eat just about anything. And we, we find ourselves questioning this pragmatic real life application <laughs> because, you know, I've been on that diet all my life. and <laughs> I don't think it really works. If I eat everything I want, I, I don't tend to find myself losing weight. And so the pragmatic channel forces us to run decisions and areas of life through reality. And we try to figure out, does that? Yeah, but does that really work? Has anyone experienced the reality here? So when you shift from things like diets and purchases to the area of faith or Christianity and the claims of the Bible, you can learn about the reasons, the intellectual uh, reasons, but then a major, really compelling piece of this whole puzzle when it comes to deciding for yourself about uh, is God real? Is the Bible true? Can I trust it? You know, one of the big pragmatic channels that you run this, these questions through is, do, do I know any real Christians? Like, is this making a difference in real life? Does, does this bring them real change? And so if you find that you've met some real Christians, you see a different type of life in them, then that reinforces the intellectual channel. Now, here's the final channel that we use to evaluate what's real. We call this the emotional channel. And it's really, the question is, how do I feel about this? And here in America, this seems to be the channel that matters most. Uh, but the other channels actually matter as well. If our feelings, however, are, are being pulled in a direction, uh, for some people, it is extremely difficult to go against our feelings. Now, since I've laid out those channels, I guess another question is, why does this topic even matter? Does it, does it even matter? I mean, wouldn't it be okay if I just sort of left God and the Bible in the Sunday box? Does it really hurt anyone to just sort of participate in, in their church to pr practice this tradition on Sundays alone for, for an hour, maybe, maybe for two hours uh, in a small group in the middle of the week, uh, but then deny the reality of what? The Bible says the rest of the time, and for the most part, the, you know, in all other areas of our lives, does it really matter? Well, I think it does. I think it matters to really wrestle through these questions because 
the God of the Word, he, he said some things that, that really highlight this issue, highlighting that he thinks it really matters the way that we see him and relate to him. For example, uh, God's Word, the Bible, says this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5 reads this. It says, Then God spoke all these words. And this is God speaking to his people, the Israelites. Chapter 20, verse 2 reads, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So does it matter if I just sort of believe, well, God is just the God of Sundays. He's the God of the Word, and primarily we restrict Him to Sundays. Well, God thinks it matters that we expand that thinking and application beyond Sundays. He says, I am a jealous God. Don't don't make any idols for yourself. Don't have any other gods besides me. And this, this flows through all of the Bible. In fact, Jesus, and the Bible's claim is that Jesus is, is God who came to the earth, uh, he is he is God in a bod. He, he is God who took on flesh. And Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 6. He said, no one can serve two masters. Now, you may have heard this before, but no one can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, you know, money is actually many people's God. In fact, this might be that area that really competes for your devotion. Money is a competitor to God. Jesus said, look, you can't, you can't serve God and then, and then try to serve money. Your heart is going to be pulled in one of these directions. You're either going to be devoted to God or you're going to be devoted to money. You can't try to, to spread out your devotion. So there are these other competitors, other gods of this world. Jesus later, he said in Matthew 6.33, he said to seek first the kingdom of God. He, he places this high, high value and emphasis and priority on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just like, G, just like God in the, in the book of Exodus, we read that he said, I am a jealous God. Don't have any other gods. Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God. This is a matter of priorities, a matter of loyalty, a matter of supreme devotion. And so there are other gods, though, and we know this. Here's some of the gods of this world that are competitors uh, to the God of the Word. So, science. You know, science for, for many in our world is, is, is God. And we even hear the phrase, trust the science. And, and some do. And some uh, find comfort in that. And some find disappointment uh, when the science shifts, when the science is incomplete when the science doesn't bring answers. Here's another area. Humanity. Really, this humanism is the dominating, secular humanism, sort of a dominating worldview in our culture. Um, but just basically elevating humans uh, really above God and, and pushing uh, human worldview, pushing uh, our perspective, our insight. So, you know, we might say, hey, trust them. Trust, trust me. Uh, trust, trust your leaders. They won't fail you. Trust your insight. Trust your, in, your intellect. Trust our, our, our progress. Uh, humanity, for many, 
is, is the God of this world. Now, here's another God of this world, money and possessions. I mean, just like we read about in Matthew 6, Jesus told us, you can't serve both God and money, but, but many try to. Many are, are still bowing down and idolizing money and possessions. And so the thought here is, hey, trust your plan. Like, trust your bank balance. Trust your savings plan. Trust your, trust your job. Trust your income. Trust your investments and, and even your retirement plan. And, and some of you, uh, you might even say, you know, I really don't have a plan. And maybe you're counting on, on and needing the government's support. Social Security, which which can lead to another god, and that's the god of empires, the god of of power. And now, thankfully, uh, you might think, well, thankfully we're in America, and and not that not that other country or the, or that other part of the world. Uh, nationalism is is a god, or some people describe it as their primary world view. So here's really where the rubber meets the road, and the real question we're really getting at is this: when it comes to reality. Can I trust the God of the Word, the God of the Bible, that He is the God of this whole world? Now let's look at what the Bible declares. The Bible declares that the universe reveals the work of a Creator. Look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. It reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. And so, you know, what this passage is saying is that God is speaking to us. He's declaring something about himself. He's revealing something about himself through what he's made. The universe around us declares the work of a creator. That's the Bible's claim. That's the declaration that God makes through the Bible. And us as a church, you know, we want you to hear what God is saying through through the Bible. But we also want you to hear what God is saying through what he has made. This passage here in Psalm 19, it gives us really a distinct impression that, that God has placed us in a very, very special place. Everything we observe, everything around us in this world, the beauty, the intricacies of, of this place... They communicate. They speak to us. For example, look at some of these photos of what God has made. You know, this picture of the night sky, it's, it's majestic. Now, we don't have this kind of a view right here. Uh, but, you know, the beauty of the night sky, the colors of the night sky, the, the, the contrast of the stars up against um, the, dark, uh, the dark backdrop. You know, the... Uh, the times when I've hiked up in the mountains, it's probably been some of the best stargazing. Uh, seeing the sunsets up there, seeing uh, the brilliance of what God has made in the stars, in the heavens. I mean, it's amazing. Or look at this picture of the fall colors. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's like a painting, just seeing all the brilliance, all the colors. Again, some of the contrast and just thinking through uh, the, the handiwork of God. Uh, as he as he made the scripture in Genesis declares, you know God making the stars, the sun, the moon, that he he made vegetation. You know we we see things like this, and, and God is trying to reveal uh, some things to us about His character, about who He is, uh, about His creativity. Uh, look at this next picture of this lush green forest, and you see again just this uh, this the signs of refreshment. 
the signs of covering, the signs of protection. I mean, uh, the shelter. The you know you know there are many creatures and animals that take shelter under these, and 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 you know it almost looks like otherworldly to look at some of the pictures of what you might find just looking at the creation. Or here's a picture of the northern lights again, just wow, just brilliant, brilliant, breathtaking, taking images of the sky. You know, and then here's another picture of of one of my favorite scenes of creation is is the ocean. Uh, I spent about seven years on the coast and just enjoyed living uh, on the central coast of California. And and this is a picture not of the central coast. We don't have a point break waves set up like that. But uh, it's a picture of a point break where you just see this symmetry of of the, the coastline and just the way that the break sets up and, and this real predictable surfing break. And, and But just you see the, the, uh, the creativity in, in what God has made there and the power of God's creation there. And you see, uh, you know, the, the refreshment and the enjoyment that, that many of these pictures and these experiences bring. God reveals something to us about himself as the creator. And there's something about just traveling out into nature, whether during the day or in the late hours of the night, where we just sort of look up and we... we have this experience of awe and wonder and and even the father of astronomy Nicholas Copernicus uh, you know he discovered that it's not all about us here on planet earth and so he discovered that everything doesn't revolve around our planet but it revolves around the sun we revolve around the sun and, and so now Copernicus here's an image of him he was a theist he believed in God here's what he said He said, the mechanism of the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. Later he says, the system, the best and most orderly artist of all, framed for our sake. And so Copernicus recognized this issue of order. You see that in that quote there. Twice he mentions order. He died in the the middle of the 16th century. And even back then... Over 400 years ago, he could observe this order as he looked up in the night sky. And he he recognized we have an orderly creator, an orderly artist, he calls God. He recognized there's purpose, there's intention that was required. I want you to pause for a moment. Can you think of anything that doesn't have order embedded into it? I mean, I can't think of too many things. But then my mind, you know, goes to things like, well, I can think of, Problems like car accidents, uh, bomb shrapnel. I can think of remnants of war, and it's just chaotic. But think about this. Wherever there is order, there is someone uh, with intelligence. For example, when you find a, a messy bedroom or kitchen, you know, an earthquake or a tornado ripping through your town would never put everything back into place. I mean, you would not expect that. Order doesn't just happen. For example, this picture of a messy room requires someone with intelligence to come and to put it back into order. Now, Copernicus, he was living in a time after the Dark Ages. He lived during the Renaissance period and really the the boom of the Christian Reformation period. And so once more and more people, one of the outcomes of the Reformation was people had access to the Bible, the common... uh, uh, man and woman could hear uh, the scripture read in their language, a language they could understand. It it took the scripture and made it accessible to people. And once more and more people got their hands on the Bible, 
more people could begin to ask questions and be prompted to really discover and to search and to learn more about this Psalm 19 experience. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. So, you know, more people can, as they learn about God's word, the Bible, uh, their eyes are drawn to the heavens to discover and to see all that God would declare about himself. But what's interesting about Copernicus is that even though he believed in God and even though he saw order, here's what Copernicus concluded about our planet. This is known as the Copernican principle. The principle is this, that the earth occupies no special place in the universe. Now, Copernicus, he didn't have the advantages of modern science, and that's why he concluded that the earth, it doesn't have doesn't occupy a special place. He didn't have the understanding we have now about the position of the Earth in our solar system. He didn't have that understanding. He didn't have the advantage of modern science like the telescopes we have, the observation tools that have advanced more uh, you know, each century and so much since then. And so he really only understood a, a small fraction of, of what we now know or what insights we have today. And so... Yes, Copernicus saw order, and, and he credited that to God. But since he shifted the focus away from the earth as the center that everyone revolves around us, and, and he realized and he discovered that, no, actually, the sun is the center. Uh, we, we, the earth, uh, rotates around the sun. Then his conclusion was that the earth itself didn't occupy uh, a very special place a significant place in the universe. Now, 400 years later, Carl Sagan, here's a picture of Carl Sagan. He's a 20th century American astronomer. Uh, he, he laid the groundwork for interplanetary studies, for exploration of the planets, and really, he was the one that led people to really believe that there may be life on other planets. Now, even with all of our advancements in our ability to observe space and, and with all this new knowledge that we have, uh, he, he is a man, Carl Sagan, is cited for another principle known as the principle of mediocrity. And here's the principle. It states this. It's very similar to Copernicus. The principle of mediocrity states that the Earth's position and status are mediocre. They're not exceptional. And I want to show you a, a clip from a, a film called The Privileged Planet. And it's just a brief clip. And I want you to, to pay attention to how he explains the principle of mediocrity and Sagan's uh, work and even conclusions. Take a look. Nevertheless, this reinterpretation of Copernicus became prominent in the 20th century. It's often called the principle of mediocrity. This principle says that our location and our status are mediocre. They're unexceptional. As a result, we should not assume that we are in any way privileged or that the universe was designed with us or beings like us in mind. The Copernican principle and the concept of the Earth's insignificance was popularized during the 1970s and 80s by the late astronomer Carl Sagan. In his best-selling book, Pale Blue Dot, Sagan wrote, Because of the reflection of sunlight, the Earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light, as if there was some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, 
the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Hey, did you catch that quote there at the end of, of by Carl Sagan? Here's the quote. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And what he's saying is, hey, we're on this pale blue dot. And according to Sagan, and, and really most scientists, there's this belief that, that us here on Earth, we aren't all that special. And in fact, once we break out and venture out further and further beyond uh, Earth, once we head deeper into the universe, the idea is that we'll likely discover just how ordinary we really are. He just says, you're you, just this lonely speck, this pale blue dot. Now, I don't know about you, but doesn't that just make you feel small and insignificant? Now, here's the problem. Scientific discoveries continue to show and really challenge these ideas. Discoveries continue to highlight that, that our planet, planet Earth, is actually unique. It is exceptional. But still, uh, these two principles, the Copernican principle and the principle of mediocrity, Together, these two principles form the backdrop for the naturalistic worldview that is really held by most of the scientific community. And, and the worldview is this. There is no room for supernatural intervention. There's no room. The prevailing belief in our day and age, it really taught since the 1960s, is that if it can't be explained by or using scientific principles or laws, then, then it can't be true. They make no room. Uh, for the existence of God. And I, I was, and maybe some of you were as well, I was public school educated, except for from kindergarten to second grade. I was in private school. And then I was in public school from third grade all the way through high school. And it, it was it was Big Bang and evolution. That was what was taught. And so although I was taught in church that, that God created the world, the world through his words and his commands, I read about that in the book of Genesis, I was taught that. But then I was also taught that in the real world and in the classroom, and according to the professors that I thought were pretty impressive and qualified, I was taught in the real world that the creation account, the biblical creation account, was sort of more of a fable, just a tale, like, like other tales that we read about, fairy tales even. In fact, Carl Sagan is famously quoted by saying this. He said, you can't convince a believer of anything for their belief is not based on evidence. It's based on a deep-seated need to believe. Now, it's an interesting quote, isn't it? You know, that, that, that we just need this to be true. We need this story to be true. But I think, and, and, and many would challenge that and say that Sagan and that the scientific community are really, really the ones grasping to believe what they believe. For example, the Big Bang or Darwinian evolution, these ideas which are taught in our schools as fact and really they, they seep through our, our movies, through our media. Uh, these are the dominating ideas in our culture. These theories, though, have evolved. They've been refined. And as we'll look at next week, when we look at more of the theory of evolution next week, many atheistic scientists now are questioning whether or not those theories provide a, a reliable answer for the issue of origins. And P. 
people, not, not just those who believe the creation story, are looking to, uh, to poke holes in Darwinian evolution. But now you have atheistic scientists that are finding the holes and saying, we need to take another look at this. We need to, we need to look for a better explanation of the origins because this is not sufficient. And so there are more people. Uh, poking holes in in uh, really what was sacred and that you could not challenge in the past. And so uh, we're going to come back to that next time. We'll look more at that. But the Bible also declares this, that, that God has set the heavens in place. God has fixed the heavens in place. So when you look up and when you take in the night sky and when you see the heavens, the Bible declares that this was by design and this was by intention. So look at Psalm chapter 8. Verse 3, the psalmist writes, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. The Bible teaching is that, is that the specific aspects of the heavens are far from random chance or just fortune, luck. I mean, the psalmist says this was God's work. This was, this was God's intention to set the heavens in in the in the in place and i would say the perfect place look at verse four what is a human being that you remember him a son of man that you look after him you made him little less than god and crowned him with glory and honor and so uh, copernicus he believed that that and, and other scientists, even uh, astronomers and those who were trying to discover more that they were trying to as they studied they were trying to discover the mind of God. They were trying to learn more about him. Now, we do have reasons, and this passage in Psalm gives us reasons for humility. You know, the psalmist is saying, when I see the heavens, when I see the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what is the human being that you remember him? Like, wow, when I look at the vastness of your creation, the, the power of your mind, you made all these things, and then I realize, and you made humans, the psalmist is saying, well, I can only stand in humility when I look up because we are so small in comparison. And that's true, especially compared to the moons and the, the moon and the stars. I mean, we are small, but, but we have been given a place of significance. We've been given a place of value. God gave us the ability to search. He gave us the ability to learn, to discover what he's made. And, and so something really doesn't match up here. The Bible's view is that the universe and the earth is spectacular. And people are valuable. That's the Bible's view. Versus the view of modern science. Really, the view is the earth is mediocre and people are mere accidents. And I think it's becoming more and more difficult to deny the wonder and the awe of this world, especially the complexity of the universe, the earth, the human body. The more scientists explore and discover, the more this principle of mediocrity gets challenged. For example, in our universe, there are literally billions of galaxies, like our own Milky Way galaxy. Billions of galaxies. And we didn't know that even just decades ago. And just, just think about the vastness of our universe. And then why is there life here? And so far, no substantial evidence of life elsewhere. But, but this hunt remains a major part of exploration, the space quest. We've got to find life elsewhere, almost to prove that, that, you know, that we're ordinary, that we're, that we're not exceptional. And, and, and 
again, just this pale blue dot. And so the hunt for more discovery and for life outside, you know, outside on other planets it exists. And scientists, they, they want us to believe that the factors that allow life here on Earth are, are random, amazing luck. I mean, the product of natural forces with the help of, of massive amounts of time. Did you know, though, that, that for life to exist right here on planet Earth, there are at least 30 essential, 30 plus essentials for, for life to exist here? And a few of those, like first one is this, and I, I've often heard this, is this the, the issue of the location of the Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. On a cosmic scale, there's, there's no margin of error. The Earth sits in the perfect position in our Milky Way galaxy. Take a look at this clip from a 2004 film called The Privileged Planet, and you'll see this point made. Within our solar system, the habitable zone is relatively narrow, beginning well outside the orbit of Venus and ending short of the orbit of Mars. If the Earth were just 5% closer to the Sun, it would be subject to the same fate as Venus, a runaway greenhouse effect with temperatures rising to nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Conversely, if the Earth were 20% farther from its home star, Carbon dioxide clouds will form in its upper atmosphere, initiating the cycle of ice and cold that has sterilized Mars. Essentially, the closer we are to the sun, we fry. The further away we are, and we freeze. And so, people refer to this placement of the Earth as, as the Goldilocks zone. This is the habitable zone. This allows for life to exist on Earth. That's one of those essential elements required for life here. Here's another one of those 30 essentials. It's the fine-tuning of the universe, specifically the law of gravity. Take a look at this clip from a film called The Case for a Creator by, by Lee Strobel. Strobel learned that life also hinges on the precise strengths and relative values of many different physical constants. One example of this fine-tuning is the force of gravity. Imagine a ruler divided up into one-inch increments and then stretched across the entire universe, a distance of some 14 billion light-years. For the purposes of illustration, the ruler represents the possible range for gravity. In other words, the setting for the strength of gravity could have been anywhere along the ruler, but it just happens to be situated in exactly the right place so that life is possible. Now, if you were to change the force of gravity by moving the setting just one inch compared to the entire width of the universe, the effect on life would be catastrophic. No large-scale life forms could exist. Anything that was more than the size of a pea would be completely crushed. So without specific fine-tuned gravity, there, there is no us. There's no humans. This is one of the essential conditions. And again, uh, you can find that film on YouTube and, and learn more about those 30 essential conditions. Another one that you could find on there is the cosmological constant. You can find an explanation of that on YouTube when you watch the, the case for a creator. I'd encourage you to watch that in its full length where, where you learn more about these different essential issues 
in order for life to exist here on our planet. But here's the point. With all these essentials, if the world is fine-tuned for life the way that it is, then it would appear there must be a fine-tuner. So look at the scripture again. So, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 reads, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. You know, we can know some things about God in what exists. This is known as, as general revelation. He has revealed himself to us, even aspects of his divine nature, even aspects of his power. And he's given you and me the ability to live here, to observe the creation, and to make some conclusions even about his existence. The issue of the earth being a habitable place, this, this Goldilocks zone, is really extremely important. What this expresses to us is that God had this desire to make life habitable. If you believe the creation account that God made all that we know and see, including us, and he put us in this habitable zone, this planet that we could live on, he did this so that he could have a relationship with us. And that's the perspective that we see all throughout the Bible. For example, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, this is after Jesus' resurrection and the church was spreading and the message of Jesus' resurrection was spreading more and more uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Eventually, the, the message reaches Athens, Greece. And Paul, one of the leaders, he begins to speak to a group of philosophers who are debating about life and the origins and their different philosophies. And Paul looks for common ground. And look at what Paul tells them in a sermon. This is Acts 17, verse 24. He tells this group of philosophers, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is he does not live in shrines. Doesn't live in shrines made by hands. Essentially this expresses an an idea known as God's transcendence. He is he is outside of of and beyond our realm. He is not bound by our time constraints. He's not bound by the conditions of our realm or our experience. He, 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 he's the one that made the world. He made everything in it. He doesn't live in shrines made by hands. He's not contained in that way. He's transcendent. Verse 25, Paul states, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So he's different than human rulers. Verse 26, From one man... This is Adam, a reference to Adam in the creation in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this, and this is Adam and Eve and their descendants. They spread across the planet over time. It says he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So God is transcendent. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth, but he is also personal. He made man and, and woman, and they had children, and there was multiplication across the planet. And he did this. Why? Well, Paul tells this group here, he did this because he wants people to know him. He puts us in specific places at a specific point in history. We have relationships with people. 
Uh, we have the joy of life. We can enjoy all sorts of things in this experience of our lives. But he wants us through all of this to reach out to him. He says to seek him, to know him. He wants us to be drawn to him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, a statement made uh, near the middle of the Bible. Here's the statement. It reads that God, he has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. He's put eternity in the human heart, meaning we know. Deep down, we know that there's more to this life. We're not satisfied to believe that this life is all there really is. People talk about their quest for purpose and meaning. You know, God, he put that desire in you if you're looking for purpose and meaning. He put that in you. Are we really just matter? Is there really no point? Is this all just meaningless and random? If this is true, that there's no point in life, there's no creator, there's no intention, there's no design, if that is all true, no wonder this worldview leads so many people to just give up. And suicide is where many people turn. Not, not all for this reason, but some because they conclude that there is no point where this pale blue dot. So think about it. The habitable zone, our galaxy is in the precise place for life to exist and in the precise place for discovery, meaning there's really nothing blocking our view to the heavens. We can look beyond the earth and discover more. We can see into the universe. We see God's plan. We see his purpose to put this place together in a specific way, in this orderly way. And he has put eternity into the human heart. He's giving you, he's given me a longing to know him, to get curious. And so what happens is many of us, many of you, have found him. And, you know, we hope that many more will. We hope that you will. And I want to invite you next week to join us as we, we go a little further into this series and we talk about the human body, what he has made, uh, when he made humans, mankind. And this all matters because if the God of, of, of the word is not the God of this world, it ultimately calls into question whether or not we can trust what he has to say, not only, not only about this issue of origins, the origin of life, but really, it calls into question if we can trust what he has to say about anything that really matters in life. And so this is crucial. And as I wrap up, I, I want to just encourage you to take a step further in investigating these claims of the Bible. And take a look at these two videos. You can find both these on YouTube. Uh, the Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel. You can search. You can find that in full and watch that. And also, watch The Privileged Planet by two men, Jay Richards and Guillermo Gonzalez. Again, Helps you understand this, this, this issue of uh, just this, the perfect position that the earth has placed uh, for life to exist. And then one other thing you could do to take another step would be to read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's the first two chapters in the Bible. And it gives you uh, the, day of, the date of creation and a specific zoom in to God making uh, man, the first man, Adam, and eventually Eve. And so I invite you to check that out. That'll help you as we prep for next week. So, hey, let's, let's pray as we wrap up. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for uh, your word and the help that we get as we look into it for answers. Thank you, Lord, that you have disclosed yourself to us through the Bible and also, Lord, through all that you have made. Lord, thank you that you uh, have given us the ability to know you, to discover more about you, and to discover more about you even through the world uh, that you made. God, I pray that you would continue to draw hearts to investigate you 
and to get more curious about what it would look like to relate to you through uh, your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.